Hello and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. We're joined today by a visionary in higher education, Dr. Paul LeBlanc, president of Southern New Hampshire University. Dr. LeBlanc talks to EAB Sally Amoruso about his new book, which argues for substantial changes to the traditional higher education model. His argument is centered on the idea that we aren't likely to improve abysmal graduation rates until we recognize that the entire credit hour model and a system built around old-fashioned classroom and scheduling allotments doesn't work very well for today's non-traditional students. Give Paul a listen and draw your own conclusions. And enjoy. Welcome to Office Hours. I'm Sally Amoruso, Chief Partner Officer for EAB, and I am delighted to be joined today by the President of Southern New Hampshire University, Dr. Paul LeBlanc. Hi, Paul. It's a real pleasure to be with you, Sally. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for joining us. Um, if anyone has been living under a rock and doesn't know Southern New Hampshire, it is the largest nonprofit provider of online higher education in the country having grown under Paul's leadership from less than 3,000 students in their on-campus um, university to now more than 180,000 students served. Not long ago, the university was number 12 on Fast Company's World's 50 Most Innovative Companies list. It was actually the only university included on that list. And Paul is here today because he has written a new book called Students First. And in the book, Paul presents a compelling case for giving students greater agency to gain, assess, and certify their knowledge on their own terms and timelines. So Paul, let's start with the provenance of this book. What made you feel like this was the right time to write this particular book? I think um, I've been thinking about this for a long time, obviously, and working on, on these questions of how do we, how do we create models that will better serve students who are increasingly left behind by our existing system of higher ed. Mm -hmm. You know, if you'll, if you'll permit me, Sally, I, I feel like I have this very schmaltzy, heartfelt embrace of the American dream and higher ed centrality to it. My, we immigrated when I was a kid. My parents had eighth grade educations. My daughters have both just completed doctoral programs, the ones at law yeah. school. And I think, you know, what was the connection between their world, which their grandparents could scarcely imagine, and the world where I was born, and it was my access to high-quality higher education. Yes. That's increasingly out of the reach of too many people. We're mm -hmm. leaving too many people behind. And you know, when I was growing up, higher education was seen as part of really critical to the solution of social mobility, mm -hmm. social justice, and opportunity. And for so many people today, that narrative has changed. Higher education is seen increasingly as part of the problem. Sure. And it breaks my heart because I love this industry and I've lived the power of it. I want to figure out how we can get that back. The pandemic actually accelerated all of the negative trends we saw. Mm -hmm. And I think it impelled me with no social life or inability to go out, um, <laughs> with no ability to be my friends, to write, to write this book, which I think I've been really working on in my head for a very long time. Um, so I speak to lots of higher ed leaders and... I think most of them would say that they already put students first. This is hearts and minds career path that they've chosen. And yet you contend that the current system is broken. How does your book actually challenge higher ed leaders to think differently about what it means to be student first? Yeah, I think it's, you, you really raise this paradox that I'm working on another book, which we can talk about later if you like, but it's yeah, around yeah. this paradox that we're in an industry like other industries like healthcare and K-12 and, um, and mental health treatment in which people, I think, have almost a calling to it, right? They have a heartfelt sense of commitment to the work and yet they now work in systems that actually often come to poorly serve and sometimes even dehumanize the very mm -hmm. people they're supposed to serve. Um, when I think about, if you think about higher, American higher education, if you think about the pressures that we impose on high school kids around the admissions process, and I think the varsity blues scandal, 
mm-hmm. only made clear what a lot of people believe, which is the game is already kind of rigged. If you think about the amount of debt we saddle students with, if you think about the exploitation of athletes or graduate students, if you think about the ways in which we build our systems to reward not things that are centered on students, but things that are centered on status, it's hard to conclude that we work in a system that loves its students, at least much of the time. So I think almost everyone would say, oh, I care deeply about students, and they believe that. But the systems of which we are part often work to disservice students, particularly on issues of equity and access and serving underserved communities. Um, We need to do a much better job. The 45% of students who start in American higher education don't graduate, but oftentimes have debt would tell you that they don't feel like they've been part of a system that loved them, that cared for them, um, that really had them at their center. So your initial comments in that response really go to a segment of higher ed that is perhaps more selective, the varsity blues. And yet a large part of higher ed is about um, serving the students of their region. And so can you expand a bit on how you feel like that system is also broken. Well, because if you take a look at it, in fact, where students are falling out of the system are not in the highly selective institutions. The hard part about those institutions getting in, once you get in, it's pretty hard to fall out. But if you take a look across the breadth of higher education, it's kind of where we're seeing, you know, accesses happening all over the place, but completion rates haven't budged one bit since 1980 for the bottom quartile Mm -hmm. of students, economic quartile for students. Um, if you take a look at the kind of uh, processes we put students through, even in the most ostensibly student-focused institutions, there's a kind of bureaucratic um, administrative burden we create, uh, which makes it very hard for many students to come into the system or survive system. Take a look at the FAFSA. That alone is a great, <laughs> wonderful illustration. I and if you listen to Arnie Duncan talk about the work mm-hmm. he did in the Chicago Public Schools to simply move the dial on FAFSA completion rates and how many more students then went to college. How many students didn't even know there was federal financial aid available? If I were uh, sort of channeling my friend Sarah Goldrick Robb, she would say, let's stop talking about Pell Grants for the needy. Let's talk about the fact that these are government funds for the deserving. And let's change the narrative around how students come to this. If we think about the trauma that so many students carry with them, the levels of housing insecurity, food insecurity, are those accounted for in our systems and our institutions? And then on a more practical level, who would have offices that open at eight and close at four if we really cared about 19-year-olds or if we cared about 30-year-olds who work all day? Um, okay. So, so we even think about, it, and then if you think about our incentive systems and in uh, so many institutions, what gets rewarded in terms of promotion, in terms right. of tenure? I'm not talking about just at the most selective institutions. Most young faculty know they better be on top of their publishing, their scholarship, mm-hmm. their committee assignments. You know, being a good colleague, however that's defined, which is mostly don't rock the boat. And there's very little reward for those who want to stay intensely focused on lifting students up. So I think it's, again, if you stand back and look at the system, it's hard not to conclude that we are not aligned with this thing we say about ourselves and who we serve. And, and, that's, then, not, and that's not relegated to the elites. And that those are all fair points. And then I think um, in the book, you also talk about for those students that actually do graduate, there is still a gap between the level of preparation um, that we have given them for the work world. And, and um, you also talk about the Gallup Purdue survey, which, um, which sort of brings that out. Can you, can you speak to that a bit as well? Yeah, we have a system that's built on a terrible measure of actual learning, which is the credit hour. Uh-huh. As a result, we really often don't know what students can actually do with what they've learned along the way. We don't even quite know what they've learned. We know grades are uh, a sort of structurally flawed uh, artifact and lots of research on grade inflation over the last decades. So, you know, the Gallup uh, survey that you you referenced was some a few years back in which something like 93% of provosts thought their graduates were ready on day one, ready for work on day one, while only something like 11 or 12% of employers agreed with them. So there's this yawning gap, and we can point to some of what's probably happened in there, but the result is we are routinely graduating students who can't write very well, who can't comport themselves. I mean, 40 years ago, a college degree was a signal to the labor market 
that you had those skills, which could be assumed. Employers don't assume them any longer. And then we often, I think, um, allow students or create sort of catalogs of programs in which we see students routinely graduate making salaries much less than what they've borrowed to get to that first job. Um, we know the data on students who are graduating from schools and for whatever reasons um, are underemployed. And we know that 50% of them will be underemployed five years later. And that 70% of that half will be underemployed 10 years later, i.e. they never catch up. So what are we doing in terms of pathways that align to high demand jobs, demonstrable skills? This is where in my book, I come back again to competency-based models which at least are a better measure of what students can actually do with what they've learned. And it's so, not a do versus no binary, which is often misunderstood. Yes. So I wanna come back to the do versus no binary, but I also wanna just acknowledge that CVE was all the rage a few years ago. Um, and it was for many institutions difficult to implement and actually didn't result in the, the cost savings that we thought would be conferred to the student. So can you talk about why you think um, competency-based education is the solution and, and why it failed in the past? Yeah, so I think, um, so first of all, I'd sort of think about the Gartner curve um, right. in which you tend to get these new breakthrough ideas. There's a rational exuberance around them. So that peaks and then all of a sudden they sort of can't live up to the building. So they they sort of drop off and call it kind of, I think Gartner calls it you know, the slough of despair. And then what actually happens is they quietly build, they we figure it out, we grow. So if you think about MOOCs, MOOCs were gonna change the world, then MOOCs were an enormous disappointment. And if you just look, you know, a few weeks ago, edX sold for $800 million, Coursera is worth billions of dollars. <laughs> so the MOOC providers have quietly built this pretty important piece of the higher ed ecosystem. In like fashion, CB came along, lots of people said, it's gonna change the whole educational landscape. Then of course it didn't, no, we couldn't live up to that. And we can talk about why, like what things get in the way, but actually we're seeing schools across the country quietly building out CBE offerings, alternatives mm -hmm. and programs. So CBE is growing and it's following that sort of Gartner curve. The reason it's growing slowly and why it struggled are a couple of things. So one is that while federal financial aid system allows for competency-based education, mm -hmm. all of the rules for dispersing financial aid are tied to time. So there's a mismatch between the legislative intent when Congress said there's something we could, you, know, you can, as an alternative to the credit hour, direct, uh, student, direct assessment of student learning can be used for financial aid. Seems really sensible. Right, uh, sure. And then none of the administrative rules evolved to um, to do that. So they're still all tied to time. Um, definitions of term, definitions of the academic year, satisfactory academic progress, all of these things tied to time. Um, so that was one. Two, competency-based education really does require, if you're going to do it well, to be really on top of your game in terms of assessment, particularly performance-based assessment, because you're talking about the ability to do something with what, what, what you know or have learned. And and the higher education is not very good at assessment, except for the areas where our lives depend on it, like yeah. clinical healthcare or aviation, you know, being being a pilot. So, so that's been that's been, I think, a problem. There's also an invitation in competency-based education, which is to say, when you get really, really good at measuring the outcomes, you can have a lot of freedom about the models that get students there. This so, non-binary. Yeah, right. that's right. And and I think that um, in my book, I showcase a variety of CBE programs that look quite different from one another. And the mm -hmm. point I'm trying to make is it gives you enormous freedom to rethink your delivery models because it's not about the inputs, it's about the outputs. Um, but not a lot of schools can persuade themselves and their faculties to take up that invitation. Like, I'm pretty happy with the way my life works. I like delivering my programs the way they look today. Why would I do that? So the incentives are not built in to, to actually do the more innovative, challenging work, I think. Well, the other aspect um, that I hear is that you can see competency-based education in some of the harder skills, uh, like tech or vocational areas. It's much uh, more challenging to think about how you um, use that um, for a Shakespeare course, for example. Yep. Yep. Um, so can you speak to that as well? 
Yeah, and one of the I, I love uh, we featured uh, featured in the book um, a, 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 a theology school of theology. So you would think, wait a minute, competency based on theology, but they really thought hard about what do they want their graduates to be able to do with this pretty amazing education they get. I often say this, have this discussion with you know philosophy faculty who say, wait a minute, I get it, I get like how you can do CB with technology or medicine, but I'm a philosopher. Like, what am I? What are my graduates going to do? And it's like. Really think about that. The most you know, powerful consulting companies in the world, McKinsey and Accenture and others, they recruit from the philosophy departments of universities. Why? Because your graduates have real skills. They have real competencies that are valued by those companies. They can think of logic models. They can think of symbol systems. They can sort of look at fallacies of thinking, critical thinking, communication, language use. Like, are those not substantial? I think of those as critical. Like I think philosophy is maybe the highest form of intellectual training. They do too. Why don't you own that? Um, but but it also, I think part of the problem is that if you say that those are the things your students can do, then you're going to be held accountable for showing that. And, and I'm not sure that that's where faculty sentiments sometimes sit. But I would argue that there's nothing about competency-based education that actually holds it holds anyone back from implementing it because it really is just an invitation to say what claims do you make for your students abilities what claims do you make for what they can do with what they've learned from you and 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 you can you should be able to ask that question of any discipline in fact i would say that if you can't answer that question you're really not sort of doing your work in the way that 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 you should and the interesting uh, aspect of that is when you think about where the world of work is going, when you look at the future of work, those skills that um, perhaps faculty are professing are the hardest to assess are the very ones that have enduring value in the world of work. Wholly agree. And I think it's one of the ironies that as we, everything we know about the impacts of AI and algorithms and machine yes. learning on the future of work, points to the fact, the point you just made, points, I sense back to the point you just made, Sally, which is that qualities and competencies and skills that we associate with the humanities are probably going to be the most valued, and yet the humanities are really poor at making that case for themselves. So I also want to explore this concept of time as currency. And um, you talk in your book about the middle-class time squeeze and how really time is the ultimate scarcity. Can you expand a little bit on that um, with regard to inequity in higher education? Sure, because I think, you know, it's it's easy for people to pretty quickly see the ways in which a credit hour is a poor measure of learning. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, the revelation for me at some point was the credit hour is also a source of inequity because it ties learning to time and time is the thing that low-income people have the least of. Yes. If you are if you are financially poor, everything takes longer. If you don't have a washer or dryer in your apartment, it takes longer to have clean clothes. I don't even give that a second thought. I'm sure you don't either. That's like, you know, on my way down the hall, throw a load right. of laundry in. Um, if you're if you don't have money um, and you don't own a car, it takes longer to put food in your refrigerator. If you don't have access to the high quality medical insurance plans of your employer, if that's not part of your world, it takes longer to get medical. Everything takes longer. And this was vividly brought home to me when I met a student in one of our programs that was not time based. And her name is Marion. I not her real name, but she opened. I opened the book with her story, and she was a student. If you looked at her transcripts. Um, she looked like somebody who wasn't either ready or I just wasn't well suited for college because she had attended two of the local community colleges, very fine schools, and she had only F's and W's withdrawals. Uh -huh. But when I asked her about it, it turned out that Marion came from the poorest neighborhood of Boston, from Roxbury. She was a single mom. Um, she had very little social capital. She had almost no financial capital. Um, you may remember about four years ago, the Boston Federal Reserve Bank issued a report that said, uh, African-Americans in Boston had a net worth of, on average, $8. The Boston Globe the next day had to do a front page story that said, you, that wasn't a typo, it's $8. So Mary, you know, lives in that community. And her uh, eight-year-old, I think eight at the time, 
had chronic respiratory illness. So every time her daughter got sick, Miriam missed class. She missed exams, she fell behind on papers, and she could never catch up. If it was early enough in the term, she took the withdrawal. If it was too late, she took the F, and she was using up her total Pell Grant eligibility dollars. Mm -hmm. When we put her in a program that was untethered to time, when she could go as fast or as slow or pause when she wanted, she was remarkable. This was a very smart woman with a lot of grit, a lot of drive, but what she said to me is that anytime a little girl got sick, she just hit the pause button because she can, She said this, I'm the calendar. She had this great phrase, I'm, I'm the calendar. And then when her daughter was recovered and was going back to school, she could hit the go button and start up again. So she raced to her degree. But we hadn't built a system well designed for somebody who had a lack of time. And if you think about people in frontline jobs, as we now call them, um, you know, if you work in fast food, if you work in retail, you may not only have not a lot of time, you may not even have control about when you have time. That is, uh, you know, do you have a set schedule? Probably not. How do you commit to a time and a place, a classroom and a schedule? But classrooms and schedule allotments work really well for institutions. The system is, our life is easier in the system when we can know that. So, so one of the things I think we see in systems of all kinds are ways in which the needs of the system start to supersede the needs of the people they serve. And I think that happens in higher ed. And I think it happens and is a source of inequity around time and schedules. So right now we have a lot of conversation going on about alternative credentials, short format boot camps, and also blended or fully online instruction. Um, and university presidents are thinking about how do I expand my online course offerings? Do I partner? Uh, do I build it myself? We may not have, we certainly don't have the resources that a SNU has, and I hear that all the time. Mm -hmm. um, so what, what advice would you have to university presidents that are thinking about using these alternative modalities and alternative structures to better serve their student populations? So I'm gonna unpack that a little bit because there's a lot in that. So <laughs> one is I think um, no responsible institution can't now have an online strategy. It doesn't have to look like ours, it doesn't have to look like others, but you need to know what your students need from you in terms of online access or digital access. So the way I would think about this is the pandemic has really accelerated the move towards hybrid um, programming. Um, and I think the key watch were there, the goal is fluidity. That is, I need to make it really easy for my students to slide in between those modalities, depending on what they need. And, and that's hard to figure out, but schools are doing that. I think everyone, every, every successful institution is going to have an online strategy. The second part that you asked about was um, short-term credentials. So short-term credentials is the hot area right now. We know that there's a demand signal as demonstrated in survey after survey from a big swath of the population that says they need the following. I need something that's faster than a degree program. I'm stuck, I need to get back in the workforce. I'm not gonna go back to that retail job. I'm not gonna go back to that restaurant job. So I need a short-term program, think three, six, nine months. Mm -hmm. I need it to be affordable because I'm stuck economically. I need it laser focused on demonstrable skills, 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 and I needed a link to an in-demand job. Don't give me something that doesn't produce a job at the end. If you think about those four things, that's not mostly what higher education does. To some extent, community colleges can lay claim to that um, with mixed levels of success. So again, if you're thinking about as leaders, I need to have a strategy around that. Do I wanna play in that space? Most of traditional higher ed is not built to do it. You got to be really right. fast. You got to be aligned with employers. You got to be very conscious of where your students are and what the job opportunities are. You got to be able to shift your curriculum on a dime. So if you take a look at a coding bootcamp, for example, which is a good example of a short-term credential provider, um, if I'm teaching software development and I'm teaching um, a programming language and there's a new routine released tonight, that's in the curriculum tomorrow. Most institutions are not built to sort of be able to adjust so quickly. So can you play, do you wanna play in that space? What's required to play in that space? Can you build out the capacity within your institution? And it's probably not trying to take your existing faculty departments and programs. It's probably bolting on something on the, on the margins of your institutions. And then the third part of that question was, 
but how do I do it? Can I do it myself? When do I turn to outsiders? Josh Kim at Dartmouth just had a nice piece on this, which is really thinking hard about what do you, what really starts with your self-assessment. What capacities do I have? What do I need? What do I want to own and build? Like, is it really essential to my identity? And what do I want to say, you know, I'll never be good at X and let some, let me hire that skill. Let me hire that ability. So the OPM industry, which has, as you know, exploded, is really an answer to that question, which is and most OPMs will now kind of give you a la carte. So what do you need from us to sort of launch into these spaces that you want to be in today? Um, and every institution is going to answer that very differently, depending on the capacities and the knowledge they have. The most dangerous place is to not know what you don't know. In other words, to build up things like, wait a minute, how did you not account for X? Didn't even know about that. That's dangerous yeah. ground. So this, the first part is to just, you know, be inquisitive and learn and and ask and 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 figure out what you don't know, and then think about the strategies for getting there. The other ambient fear that I hear is the cannibalization of higher ed. Um, so if I choose not to go into that space because it's not right for my institution, which may be the right strategic move, are we allowing the cannibalization of higher ed by these disruptive and alternative providers? So technically cannibalization would be if we were doing it to ourselves. Right. <laughs> so I'm going to reframe <laughs> slightly, which is, you know, are we going to allow new providers invade our ecosystem? Think of them as like invasive species. Yes. So will this invasive species come in and kind of take over? And I like the ecosystem uh, metaphor because we're in the middle of ecosystem change, really big ecosystem change. And when you're in the middle of it, it's kind of hard to know how it will all play out. But what we do know is that those who once thrived might struggle. Those who once struggled might thrive. And new players into an ecosystem will sometimes be good for it and sometimes will be bad for it, but it will almost always change it. So if you think about it in that context, it could be that schools which have had a stranglehold on some part of the market all of a sudden see that erode because there are new players coming in. It could be the answer to schools that have struggled for a while who are not going to be able to build against the selective institutions. It takes too long to build your brand but who get really good at something that they weren't good at. No one knew who we were when we started this journey. We were unknown, tucked away in Manchester, New Hampshire. People in Boston didn't know who we were. So it can happen. And we're not an anomaly. We didn't, we didn't discover some magic. We just got really focused on, on what we needed to do. And I think you know, there is a playbook, Sally. And I think you have to think about what is your theory of change? What is your theory of what's happening? I think for presidents and leaders, you have to be unbelievably hard-nosed about your own institution. I know we have to be cheerleaders outside of the boundaries of our campus, but I always say you have to be like a poker player in a high-stakes poker game. You have to look at your hand and play your best cards. And smart poker players don't chase inside straights, right? They don't do stupid things. Don't do stupid things. <laughs> like, and get really, really focused on the problems you want to solve. And for some people that might be, you know what? My institution isn't a particularly high branded or selective institution, but I sit smack dab in the middle of a community that's desperate for shorter term credentials. And I've got an employer who will hire every single pick a category software engineer that I can produce for them. And I can figure out by partnering with the right person or bringing the right people in to build nine month programs and market that. That's great. That's an opportunity for those who were once uh, struggling to survive to thrive. So that's a Clay Christensen jobs to be done exercise. Um, and, but I think, I don't think this is not one of those situations where the haves necessarily win out against the have nots. An ecosystem change, the formerly have nots can be sort of empowered and the formerly haves can actually be banged up a little bit. I think that's what we're going to see. And thank you for pushing on that concept of cannibalism. You're absolutely right. Although I do hear the legitimate fear around cannibalism itself for institutions that are thinking about offering uh, different and alternative credentials themselves. And what would you say to that? And, and you can draw from Clay Christensen's work here because I know he has strong views. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's so simple. <laughs> if you don't figure out how to do it, someone else is going to do it to you. Because in the end, it's about meeting students in terms of what they need and what they want and delivering the kinds of education they want in the ways they want it. 
So if I don't figure out how to do that to myself, there are a lot of other people trying to figure out how to do that to me. So it's a, it's a, I think it's a misplaced fear, but it is, but it's also the most natural one, right? Which is, but wait a minute, I've got this high margin program and I do okay with it. If I do this low cost, low margin program over here, oh my God, students are going to go over to it. Well, you still have those students and you can then start to build that program. And if it cannibalizes you, it means you pose a threat to others. So strategically, okay, embrace it, run with it. Um, but don't, but move your resources. Like, don't just leave the old thing to flounder with, you know, so, so it's, it's, it's a really interesting leadership and managerial challenge around that strategy. But someone's going to do it to you if you're not doing it to yourself. And that's, and that's, that can sound pithy and cliche, but it is the brutal truth. Well, I think about the, um, the pricing issues that higher ed institutions faced when they first went online across COVID and how this sort of brought to life the jobs to be done question at a different level, because all of a sudden they may have had online courses that were lower priced. They were now bringing their residential experience online and trying to, um, in some cases, uh, make the argument that this was still the same quality of um, instruction that they were providing in the residential experience. And you wrote an interesting article about that called It's Not the Salmon Stupid or something along yeah, those lines, yeah. right? <laughs> Can you speak to that? Yeah, I think it. I think what I was trying to argue is that the um, residential, reg, residential campuses who then had to go online were confusing or forgetting that there are two jobs that they're being paid to do. Yes. There is the delivery of an academic experience and a degree, and students place a certain value on that. And then there is this coming of age experience of living on a campus and a community of peers. And it's an amazing experience, right? Yeah. And they place a value on that. When the schools had said, hey, it's the same experience. So we're just going to give you 10% back because we don't have this other thing for you. What they were saying resoundingly back is, uh-uh, no way. We actually put a lot more value on the coming of age residential community experience, and we don't value your academic experience quite the same way because we perceive that it, it's kind of like the same everywhere else. Like students, mm -hmm. I don't think make a huge distinction between our academic programs. They make a they, they make a big distinction over the sort of, you know, the campus life and the place that they're attending and the peers that are there. That's That's huge for them. And that's a bitter pill for a lot of academia to swallow because we spent enormous amounts of time, energy, and resources thinking about our academic programs. We're academics, that's what we're paid to do. Yeah, and I think we think of the other job, that coming of age job, as a kind of ancillary. It is this other piece. And what the pandemic showed us is that it actually might be more of a balance. It might even be that students are saying, no, I actually value, put more value on the campus experience. And I'm actually willing to take my academics in a variety of other ways, including ones that are cheaper. That's that's an interesting sort of dynamic, but that's a very hard pill to swallow. And so as we're coming out of COVID, I, I um, hear a lot of presidents and, and leaders struggling with reconciling what you're just talking about, which is um, trying to create more capacity for online, trying to be more flexible, but still preserving that student experience on campus. Um, and even from a, an employer standpoint, how do we let our workers be remote if we need them on campus to create that magical, wonderful student experience? What advice would you have for higher ed leaders who are really struggling to reconcile that? Yeah, I think it is to um, get comfortable with the idea that we have to unbundle these two jobs and treat mm -hmm. them as separate jobs that touch each other but that aren't the same. And I think we've, by you know, charging one tuition and kind of putting it all together in one box, we sort of lost sight of what people really value and what they're willing to pay for. Um, I think that you, so on the academic side, I think you have to build for the kind of fluidity and hybrid models that students will increasingly demand. We're trying in my own institution on the residential campus, which is not very big, it's only 4,000 students all total, but to be very, very comfortable with students being able to mix and match. 
So in this particular semester, I'm only going to take two classes on campus, but I'm going to take three classes online. Why? I'm playing a sport this season and the schedule just works better if I do that and I need the flexibility. Or I have um, an internship and I want to be able to do that. And so, right, so like that mix and match was really, I think, going to be very powerful for our students. We actually have a handful of students who are living on campus and having a full campus experience and only online for their academics. Right. And it's like, right. okay, let's watch this. Let's learn and see what that's like. Do they feel as engaged with the campus as like? So, on the academic delivery, I think you have to think about that in one way. But the other job, that coming of age job, that, that what we learned from the pandemic for students who have the privilege, and it is a privilege to be on campuses, on residential campuses, that's not the majority of higher ed, they, they were desperate to be back for the most part they love that experience and i think you know being able to be able to separate those but the question i would have is is four years of coming of age too much do we really need four years of res residential education can we start talking about models that bring down the cost by allowing students to have three years of life on campus fourth year online and start to work like Create that, you know, bring down the opportunity cost, move to an earn while you learn model. So I think there's an invitation here to get much more creative about the models and start to deal with the downward pressure on cost, which everyone's going to face. Um, Does the the residential wonderful four year or three year experience then just become for the affluent? That is another fear, right? And be, because what you're talking about is creating more access and serving students better, but um, are we creating a two-tiered system where we are actually exacerbating the have and have-nots? Right. So let's acknowledge that we have that today. And we probably have a three or four-tier system. Right. And um, every time we accept students that, for whatever reasons, don't, don't make it, we are right. That's a failure of those students. So we have we have a tiered and selective system already that places people in various parts of the hierarchy of higher education. Um, and I sometimes think we forget that, like we think we have an egalitarian model. We don't have an egalitarian model by any stretch. Secondly, I think that students themselves tell us in various ways that the, the existing models um, don't work for them as well as they did when you and I went to school. Um, so that can take, that signal from them comes in many forms. They're choosing other ways of learning. They're moving towards, they're more open to the non-degree programs, um, the shorter term programs that places like Grow with Google and others are offering. Yes. Um, they are moving to online more fully. So that 180,000 students, we have 30,000 traditional age students in that mix. We used to think only of working adults with kids. Now we've got young adults who would otherwise be the same age as would be on a campus. We forget that, you know, the minority of students live on campuses today. That, you know, first time, full time living on a campus straight out of high school, that's a distinct minority of students. That's not most of higher ed. So I don't know if we're in some ways creating kind of a red herring for ourselves when we think about that question. The... The heart of that question though, which is about equity, I think we need to be much more serious about and think about the ways in which our current system is inequitable and start to get at that. And that's part of what the argument of the book is. The subtitle is equity, access, and opportunity in higher ed. Um, and to you, the real crux of that is recognizing time as the currency and allowing students more agency. I think that, I think bringing down cost, I think yes. really thinking harder about uh, transparency and outcomes, the ability to demonstrate to students, you know, what the pathways are for them to unlock opportunities. We know, for example, the research shows us that choice of major is actually much more impactful than choice of school. Um, yet, when we report outcomes, we report them on an institutional basis, not on a programmatic basis, by and large. Now, there are some attempts to break that down, and some states have started to do that as well. So I think there are a number of things we can do to address equity, but I think time for me was a revelation about how important that piece is as well. So stepping back, what are the biggest changes you think are coming to higher ed over the next five to 10 years? And then what advice might you have for university leaders? I think you have an invitation to um, think kind of a third way 
and drop the old, what I think are increasingly tired binaries. So we used to think about face-to-face versus online. It's going to have to be both. It's going to be a mix and an interweaving of both. We used to think of knowledge and skills. It has to be both. We have to be able to create what IBM calls T-shaped employees, right? People with the breadth of knowledge, but the ability to go deep in terms of their skills and competencies. So I think that will be another sort of binary that falls away. We used to think about degrees and non-degrees. I think we're going to think about a range of credentials and pathways. I think we used to think about sort of, you know, we had a sequential model in our head of students who would come out of high school, go to college for two or four years, and then go off in their careers. That seems hopelessly antiquated and out of date. We know that skills now reach their expiration date much faster than ever before, and the jobs change at a ferocious velocity. So even if your job does not change, your job title, your job will change out from under you every three to five years. What does that mean practically? It means that you're going to dip in and out of a higher ed ecosystem for the whole of your life. I think one of the things that we're going to have to come to grips with in our industry is we are going to we are losing our monopoly on what counts. So we used to be the arbiter of knowledge and the arbiter of credentials. I don't think that will be true any longer. When you look at places like Walmart working with Guild, if you take a look at you know, Target just announced their big um, partnership with Guild, you have Instride doing its work. Um, a number of these players who, you know, I think you're seeing employers in some ways rise up as the arbiters of quality. Um, some people would say they're the next generation of accreditors. In other words, they will say to the world, this is a quality program. Um, so, I, you know, in all of those things, these are, these are the big, what I kept saying earlier, these are the big ecosystem changes. And I think what we have to be able to do is move away from the, t- in many cases, I would say very tired framing to think about kind of the new um, sort of thirdism. <laughs> what is this What is this new thing that we're building? And when we move away from the old choices, it's actually pretty liberating. We can start to think about the, f- the future of higher ed differently. But I think it's, again, going to be a painful recognition that we no longer as an industry hold the monopoly on what counts. That the learning ecosystem in a way that's really, really good for students will offer them many more choices greater sense of transparency and opportunity, they'll be able to make better choices. I think we will move more closely to um, something that feels like genuine personalized options, right? So we often say my own institution, the vision is to be able to give students just the right learning in just the right way in just the right time. And, And if you think about an ecosystem that can do that, I think institutions of higher ed will continue to be very, very important. And I think degrees will still be incredibly important milestones, but they won't be that alone. And there will be a lot more. And that's probably a really good thing for students. So perhaps apropos to the title, Students First, your book actually features a lot of student voices and stories. You talked about Marion, who was really the uh, aha moment for you about time. Are there any other student stories you think would be instructive to our listeners? I'm sure there are lots, but maybe one or two. Yeah, no, there are a lot, there are lots of them. And I think um, I, you know, we do a lot of work with in refugee camps in Africa and the Middle East. And I watch um, what happens when the opportunity to learn is not only uh, not a guarantee, but it's actually a distant and remote hope. And when you can put that in the hands of people, how powerful that is. And I think one of the revelations of that for me is when we take a learner, whether it's there or I had a student who we helped another student out of uh, Roxbury, Mass, who was the first in his family who was homeless when, he, when we scholarshiped him. He had no resources. Um, when he came to us, the whole neighborhood who knew him gathered for his send-off. When I was in the Kakuma refugee camp in Kenya, in a remote part of Kenya, there were two students that were in our program and we really feared for their their safety and their mental health. Suicide had sort of a wave of suicides that washed over the camp and these kids were very precarious. They had, by the way, only known life in the camp. So they were in the early 20s and never known a life outside Mm -hmm. of a refugee camp. A tough, tough place. And I remember we gave them, um, we gave them a scholarship. We told them in the morning, we're going to bring you to the U.S. We're going to work, get you a visa, full scholarship. We're going to get you out of here. One of them couldn't stop talking. It was this like wave of emotion. And the other one couldn't talk. He could just sit there with tears coming down his cheeks. He was rendered speechless. 
And I remember being so moved, but also saying to the camp director, this wonderful guy, Ignazio, Italian, UN uh, staffer, that night, um, it was pretty kind of, it was, I was having a very hard time with it because I was saying, so we helped these two and it's wonderful, but the magnitude, there are 200,000 people in that camp. And, and we saw horrible things, hard things. I was like, what do we do? And he said, you just gave the greatest currency possible for everybody else. You gave the currency of hope. Because now they can look at these two young men and say, if it happened to them, it can happen to me as well. And sometimes it does. Um, and I think one of the things that I would observe about the work is, and from the student stories, is that it's not just their story alone. When I, you know, some of the graduates who walk across the stage, I say, you know, this is really hard. You know, why did you do this? And they often will say, you know, I need to get that degree, get a better job. But almost always they say, I wanted my kid to be proud of me. I wanted them to know their mom or their dad is a college graduate. And this ripple effect that goes through a family, that goes through a community, that goes through that camp is really pretty remarkable. And I often say, um, when I think about the student stories that inspire me most, we're not, we're not just in the business of education, we're in the business of hope. And I think that the, I'm working on a second book that will be out next year. And in that book, I really talk about these more existential questions than I do about system reform. Um, those are, we need to reform our systems, but on some level, we have to reform them in these very human ways. And I, the questions I sort of ask are like, how do we make students feel like they matter? You know, the three, Craig Elliott, this wonderful sociologist at Brown talks about the three questions, whether you're talking about your employees or whether you're talking about the students who serve, the questions I have is, does this place even know I exist? And there are lots of ways I think that people can feel like a number, like no one really knows. Kids who fall through the cracks, did anybody know I exist? Do they invest in me? Do they actually, is there any demonstration that they're investing in me as opposed to the system and the institution? And, and do they demonstrate that they value me? So it's one thing to invest. I could give you a scholarship and say, Sally, I'm investing in you. I'm making this opportunity available. But if once you arrive on campus, every signal says you don't belong, I don't make you feel like you're valued. Those are two different things. So the first chapter is on mattering. And the second chapter is on helping people dream bigger dreams for themselves. And, and I'm talking to people from lots of other industries that are built to ostensibly to lift people up. So I'm talking to people who lead healthcare systems, I'm talking to a guy who spent 23 years in prison in California, nine of it in solitary confinement, who's building a college for recently released prisoners, formerly incarcerated. Um, and all of, and I'm talking to folks who lead really cutting edge mental health service providers. And what's interesting about all of them is when you get at how they're reforming and rethinking the systems, and they'll talk to you about incentives and how the money moves and all that's wrong with all of that. They'll talk about policies, but they always get back to people that we serve need to feel respected and that we know them, that we see them in their wholeness, not just as labels, but as human beings. So um, a story that Arnie Duncan tells quite often is the story of this guy, uh, Billy, um, Billy Moore, who killed one of Arnie's friends, murdered him when he, Billy was only 15. It was a stupid street altercation south side of Chicago. Arnie's friend Benji was the most highly rated high school basketball player in America. It was 1980-something when this happened. And Billy served 20 years, 21 years. He's out now. He works in Arnie's organization. He works with young men um, who've been in and out of jail, uh, often for pretty serious violent crimes. And what he would say about that day when he was 15 years old is, that's the thing I did, but it's not who I am. And, and the, our system so often put people they serve into categories and labels. And I'm really interested in thinking about how in higher education do we move past that to recognize students and the wholeness of their being, and then to build institutions and programs that recognize that and serve them in that way. So that's, that's kind of the big, I'm sorry, you started with a simple question is, you know, no. what do you need to learn about individual student stories? And I think the bigger the answer to that is, that we have to understand our students fully as human beings and not as, a, not as a major or a label in which they fall or an income category or a marketing cohort or a marketing segment. 
but to really, and, and here's the thing, it only works if you provide time. There's no shortcut to it. Like there's a lot of good things we can do with technology. And a lot of people are like, oh, SNHU, you guys use technology a lot. It's like, yeah, we use data a lot, we use technology a lot, but we do it to amplify human interactions. And when we focus on efficiency, when we focus on cost cutting, or if you're in a for-profit world, shareholder value, and any other number of things that are important to the system, they actually reduce the efficacy for the people they're supposed to serve. Um, so it's a it's a complicated question I'm trying to unpack and understand, but there's a wonderful book, for example, called The Long Fix by Vivian Lee, which is about the reform of a healthcare system in Utah. She talks about these things. Yeah. Um, I talked to a person who heads up uh, um, an opioid addiction uh, treatment center, a series of them, and she talked about how they actually reverse the traditional relationship of the medical staff to the counselors, because the medical staff and most providers quarterback patient care, but in their world, they actually reverse it, the counselor does. Why? Because the counselor spends hours with the patient, the medical staff is looking at a file. Who knows the person, right? And who can recognize them in the fullness and complexity of who they are as human beings? So that's that's our big challenge in the end. And it's really, it's a wonderful challenge because it's an invitation for us to get back with the heart of all great learning, which is a, a relational one. It's human beings with each other, um, learning and teaching and engaging. Well, I can't imagine a better note to end on. Thank you for writing both of these books. Most of us, um, did not hold to our resolutions across COVID to lose weight or learn a language. You managed to write two uh, amazing um, books. Um, And thank you for joining me today and sharing your insights. Well, it's a pleasure. You'll have to decide if it was a good use of my time, Sally. Wait till you read them before you decide, but thank you, you're kind for saying it. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for listening. Please be sure to join us next week when we share findings from a new survey of more than 2,000 current and prospective adult, graduate, online, and professional students about their future enrollment plans. Until then, thank you for your time.